What has Jesus come to do? What has Jesus come to do? Last week we saw Jesus on trial and Pilate, the high court of the land, the governor, he's really asking that question and we engaged with it last week, who is Jesus? He even asked that, he directly, in a moment of shaken to his core kind of fright, says, who are you? Where are you from? Well, today, this Good Friday, we've come to the closing chapters of John's Gospel. And in these closing chapters, this morning on this Good Friday, we're asking, what has Jesus come to do? So, those two key questions, who is Jesus and what has he come to do, are the key questions of life in this world. And everyone has to engage with them especially everyone who hears this message from the Bible, everyone on this Good Friday. I realise that not everyone in Bendigo region is here right now or in any churches right now. Not everyone's here. I get that. This morning I was driving on the way thinking, you know, I should put on Facebook, um, Bendigo Festival Friends. I know the rain's put a dampener on things outside in parades, but churches have buildings so there's great activities happening around about 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock, depending on your church. You can go and find a church and, and hear something truly amazing this Easter. One of the things about Easter is it can be tempting for us to kind of market Easter, can't it? You know, to dress it up. But I love this quote by Jared Wilson who says, we've got a man raised from the dead. If you aren't buying that, I can't sell it to you. <laughs> You know, we've got someone raised from the dead. You don't need to mark. It's amazing. What has Jesus come to do? Well, of course, on Good Friday, we're not that year on Sunday, it's coming. But on Good Friday, we're looking at Jesus. What he came to do, friends, he came to die. And you can't look away without asking why. I think for me, sometimes, and I'm a preacher, sometimes the fog of familiarity so covers my eyes that we kind of go, but I need something extra. Dress it up for me. So many something extra. Where else? We? A new insight, a something. And, and we easily become, I easily become tempted to look for something else because I think we become bored. We're so familiar with this, we're just, we're just bored. That's me. Is that you? But to look at the death of Jesus and to do it again as we pray with, with eyes of faith that we will believe is to look at God in flesh in John's Gospel. We've been in John's Gospel now for a long time to, to look at the one who is the Word made flesh, who's dwelt among us, who has died on a cross. And today... The Word made flesh, the revealing one of God, says in his last words before he dies, it is finished. This is the meaning of today. It's why we gather. We come to hear it again. I know of old saints, old Christians on their deathbed, can you imagine what you'll say on your deathbed? What will your last words be? Old saints over the years haven't said on their deathbed, you know what, I just need to get on Facebook again and take a selfie. This is me dying. 
I haven't said things like, I just want to have that one last earthly pleasure. Now, old saints, that is, those who believe in Jesus and know they have life in his name, know that as they leave this life and step into eternity, they're actually entering real life. Life forever, because it is finished. The last words of Jesus on the cross give us all the words forever. It is finished. And so John, as he writes this, John writes, firstly, look at your crucified king. The episode of John 19 before us is one scene, it's one day, it's one moment. And in that moment, they take Jesus to be crucified to the place where that commonly happens, the place of the skull. You can look this up, you can Google it, but perhaps just outside Jerusalem, where there was a quarry and the earth couldn't be quarried that easily, there's a bit of a mound, a bit of a hill, it's a common crucifixion place. They take him there, they call it the place of the skull. And the day of crucifying, normally others, others are crucified. On that day, there's three of them on that skull place, but Jesus in between, he gets special treatment. He gets a sign. And we notice this, look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, this sign is multilingual, as Chris read it earlier. We saw that, didn't we? The sign is in three languages, three languages of the empire. It's multilingual, which says to all, in any language, this is the crucified king. It's hard to get tone from text messages, isn't it? You ever try to read tone in a message? Email is a little bit better because, and I like to tell people if I'm training people about communication, email and especially text messages, it's like comparing the theatre to television, right? So this is going somewhere, by the way. Um, In television, you can zoom in on people's eyes and on their expression as they give a message. And if they're being sarcastic, you can zoom in and they say, yeah, thanks. But you can tell they're being sarcastic. Whereas theatre, you can't see. So what does the person, the actor on the stage of theatre need to do when you can't zoom in? They need to say, yeah, thanks. It's all over-exaggerated. We have a message in words. The tone might be hard to pick up because it's just a message and some words. In the text message version of the day, a little sign on a cross. It might be hard to see the tone, but the tone is evidently, from the narrative as we see, the tone is sarcasm. It's a taunt. It's a mock. From who to who? From Pilate to the Jews. And he says, oh, you're king? (laughs) You got a king? Yeah, we crucified him. You're crucified king. There he is. That's your king. Now, of course, that's what Pilate means by it, but they don't take it that way. They're a little bit miffed because they're like, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. He's not our king. We rejected him, remember? Remember? We said crucify him. That was our idea. It wasn't your idea. So they're miffed. And what do they say? Because this sign has multi-meanings. It's not just multilingual. It's multi-meanings. And so we read. The Jews say to Pilate, verse 21, the chief priests and the Jews say, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews.
For Pilate, he means to mock. For the Jews, who mean to crucify, and what is crucifixion? It is death by mocking. It's death by humiliation. It's execution by being totally strung up naked and shamed. Friends, what is the cross? The cross is the mockery of Christ, the King. So whenever we see Christ mocked in our world, instead of getting angry about it and thinking it's poor marketing, they're actually doing all the marketing for us. That's the point. The point of the cross of Christ is not to be on a flag, to be leading an army. It's to be on those who are weak who say, that's how I got saved. They don't get it, but we do, don't we? We do. We get it. As the taunting happens, remember, he is the crucified king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. Thanks, Colin Buchanan. For reminding our children in song and all this. He's the king of the universe. And look at him on the cross with this sign, this text message of the day that's kind of mocking him. Hard to see the tone, but you can tell it's a mock because the whole thing is a mockery. But there he is. And throughout the Gospel of John, throughout this biography of Jesus, what have we seen about Jesus every single day, every moment, every scene? He is the powerful one. He's God. Here is Jesus the King, who could easily come off that cross. As someone has said, it's not the nails that hold him there, it's his love. And as he's on that cross, what is the king doing? What is the crucified king doing? Conquering. He's in battle. That's how the gospel fights. It's not with an army and a flag. It's in battle. Christ is in battle on that cross. The king is currently at war with sin, flesh and the devil. And he's winning, friends. This is how the king conquers. Many a king comes to conquer a nation. How do kings conquer nations? We've got one at the moment doing it. Well, he likes to think he's a king. Right? And every time I mention his name or the nation, you know, somehow we get bots on our website and I get traffic and I get email. Right? His, his name rhymes with, with um, Vladimir Mutin. Let me put it like that. Let's see how they go with that one. But we have many like that today. Alexander Lukashenko. It doesn't matter who you are. Kings of our day, presidents, premiers, who elevate themselves. How do they conquer their opponents? Be that political, be that national, be that military. How do they do it? With force. And defeat them until they rise above them. But how does this king defeat? How does he conquer? He dies. Many a king conquers nations and they bring armies so that others die. This king conquers evil by dying himself for his people. When Jesus is lifted on that cross, a crown of thorns stuck into his head, he is being coronated as the sin-smashing king. Do you see what the king has come to do? Remember from the preface of John's gospel? I mean, we read this like... 
year and a bit ago, because we've been in John's Gospel in two halves, it's in two halves the Gospel, so last year, first term, John's Gospel, first half, second half, this term. You might remember, you can just look in the Bible, back in John chapter 1, verse 5, in that preface, what do we read? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see what's happening at the cross? There is the King who is going into the darkness. He's going, he's running into the battle, into the war that is darkness, and then he rips it apart in his own death. And he does it for you. He does it for you. He comes to be your crucified King. And we see, secondly, therefore, that all the promises of the Old Testament... All the promises of the Bible, every page points to Jesus. Every page points to Jesus. After Jesus nailed to the cross, what do we see happen next? Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. They've nailed him to a cross, and now the soldiers gamble for his garments. Yet what is going on is far deeper than those actions there. Every moment points to Jesus. Every page points to Jesus. Every moment points to Jesus. You see, even this moment with soldiers gambling for the, the tunic, this moment is a fulfilling of Scripture. Even the dark moments of the cross actually fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. They point to Scripture. Here is Jesus, the perfect man, Come to die for imperfect sinners. And the quote from Scripture, of course, is in verse 24. From Psalm 22, we read our cross-reference reading. Psalm 22, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. They're just doing what God said would happen. And what is happening? What is symbolic about this? Is it just they're gambling? Is that, is that the issue? What, what is going on here? Something more. Think about this. John's Gospel connects to Genesis. And we've been in the book of Genesis. We'll go back there again soon. So we put a pause up to Genesis 12. We'll go back soon. We saw this. John's Gospel and the book of Genesis are theologically so connected, aren't they? Because how does Genesis start? Anyone know? Anyone remember? In the beginning. Now, how does John's Gospel start? Remember? Just have a look there. You turn the Bible over. Go back a few pages. Oh, look. In the beginning. John grounds his theological understanding of who Jesus is. Is God from the beginning, before time, after time, outside of time, come into time. This is God. Now think about this, what happened in God's world? God made this world beautiful, he loved it, he said it's very good. Then he put us, our ancient grandparents in it, Adam and Eve, and then they fell and we all fell. And what happens is they become naked and, remember, you know remember? Ashamed. Look what's happening here at the cross. Here is Jesus, the perfect man. 
come to die for imperfect sinners. The first man, Adam, fell and so we're all fallen, born into sin, naked and ashamed. We're all naked and ashamed before God. And yet now, here is the God-man Christ hanging on a cross and now he is naked and shamed. He's taking our place. As they gamble for his garments, what's really happening is we see actually he is naked and shamed instead of us. And so Jesus, who bore the thorns of the curse in his head in that crown, the thorns and the thistles of sin in this world, he bears that curse on his head as his face is disfigured and bleeding from the the, the thorns of the curse. We also see the shame of nakedness of Adam and Eve, who sought to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, because that's all they could do, which shows that we can't fix it. Jesus does. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus for us. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This particular scripture fulfilled is Psalm 69. We read how the suffering saver will become the shamed one in place of people with sin and shame. Do you see what's happening? In every moment, every detail, everything is planned by God. Everything. Human hearts have wanted to, since the beginning, reach out and take to distrust God at His word, to not believe God at His word. To disbelieve, to dishonor God, to not love God, to make ourselves kings and queens without God. Our sin separates us from God who is so good. And so things go from bad to worse and we can't fix our fallenness. But here is the one who is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He is the promised serpent crusher. The suffering one of Psalm 22, the shame-bearing, sin-bearing one of Psalm 69, the saviour the scripture speaks about, he is our Passover lamb. Before this in John's gospel, Jesus has been speaking about what kind of death he was going to die. In John 12, he said this, now is the judgment of the world, this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. The kind of death that Jesus has come to die is a sacrificial death. He sacrifices himself. And this day happens at Passover. On Wednesday night, Passover started. So depending on the calendar, the lunar calendar and how it falls each year, Passover and Easter, it's no coincidence they happen at the same time. Because Jesus has that last supper then on Thursday night and he takes the Passover meal and turns it into something else. We as the church understand it as the Lord's Supper. 
That memorial meal, that remembrance, was to remember for God's Old Testament people that when judgment came for them to be free from slavery in Egypt, it came through a passing over. That is, blood was shed, a lamb was killed, a lamb was sacrificed. The firstborn lamb, the perfect lamb, without blemish, was sacrificed. And its blood, as it gurgled its last breath, would be spread over the doorway so that when the Lord came that night, if you had bloodshed already, bloodshed would not come to your home. You would be passed over. And as Jesus is lifted on that cross, he is what the Passover points to. As he dies, he is our Passover lamb. We even see this in this passage in John. Look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. The Passover lamb was not to have its bones broken, it was to have its throat slit. Blood shed. For God's Old Testament people, the land that was slain, but for us, for now, we see, lifted high on that day, it is no sheep. It is the willing, self-sacrificing person of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ was killed on that cross, pierced for our sins to bring us to God. Verse 37 Again, fulfilling scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Where's that from? Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, we read in Zechariah 13 verse 1, there is a promise that one day because of this sacrifice, there wouldn't just be the need to sacrifice animals again and again and again. One day, Zechariah 13 verse 1, there would be a fountain filled with blood for the forgiveness of sin. Now, friends, remember why John writes this gospel. We've, we've said it every week. It's been in our benediction, our blessing for our sent worship during the week. Why does John write this gospel? These things are written, he says, in 20 verse 31, which is the purpose statement of the letter. Verse 31, these are written so that you may be entertained. I hope you're talking, well, hang on a minute, something just happened just then. It's so time to uh, look at Russ's call for the ministry. No, he doesn't, does he? He doesn't say these things are written so that you would be entertained at Easter. He doesn't say these things are written so that you would see, wow, you know, Christianity's got some cool things going for it. He didn't say these things are written so that you would have a way in which that you could probably tell some cool stories around the campfire as you go camping at Easter, which is a good thing to do. We love camping, I love camping. No, these things are written, why? You know, reforming, you know. These things are written so that you may believe. That you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. When Jesus says in John 12, I'll be lifted up on the cross to draw people to myself, Rory and I... Rory's another real elders here, if you're new or visiting. But Rory and I prayed before the service, the our elders usually do. And we prayed this. We can't bring people to God. 
We can't draw people to God. We have no power to do so. I could not... You know, you see that little thing on the screen there? I made that on Canva. It's pretty easy. The gig is up. I'm the graphic designer of our church. Because right. it's easy. Anyone can do it. You can do it too. Right. But I could not make a banner nifty, cool, engaging enough to draw people to God. I couldn't, we couldn't put a light show or a sound show or any sort of show that would draw people to God. The only thing that draws people to God is the person of Christ and the cross by His Spirit powerfully working by His Word. That's it. It's the Word that grows the church. It's the Word that builds the church. It's the Word that saves people. It's the Word that people need to believe. You see this scene? We've got your crucified King, God's promises fulfilled for us, our Passover lamb for us to believe. And part of this scene is again and again we see just who Jesus is and what he's come to do. There's this moment, it's actually a very intimate moment in verse 26. Jesus sees his mum. Jesus sees his mum and he says to his mother, as he turns to the other disciple in verse 27, who's John, and he says, woman, your son. And then he says to John, his dear friend, behold, your mother. Here is Jesus' mother Mary. For three decades now, we saw her last at Christmas, but it's been three decades since Christmas. For three decades now, she's standing there, she's older. Her husband Joseph perhaps has died. She's got the wrinkles, she's aged. She's seen, his, she's seen her son's ministry and now she wants to stand there and not let her son die alone. But as she stands there and Jesus says this, why is this here? It shows us just how perfect this man is. He's a sinless man, innocent man. But it also shows us something else. Why are the intimate details written? Because they happened. There is no doubt this is a historical event. In fact, John, who was there, who was the disciple that now takes Mary in to care for her in her sunset years, he says, I was there. I heard those words from Jesus, I was there. We see this in verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. The intimate moments, every moment, this is an historical account. In fact, non-Christian scholars, historians, in group of eight universities in Australia, Macquarie, so forth, in the New England Universities of America, the varsity, in Oxford, Cambridge, when Richard Dawkins said, oh, we don't even believe the historical Jesus was real and it actually happened, he died on a cross, when he said that, who was a molecular biologist, by the way? Not his field, outside his lane, but when he said that, every single historical scholar, who are not Christians, said, whoa, 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 that's not the case. We believe there was a real Jesus, he really died on a cross. Of course, the question is the resurrection. Leave that to Sunday. This happened, and John says, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I went through the grief. I heard him say, it is finished. 
Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Old Testament translations, and I think it's Tyndale actually coined the phrase, gave up the ghost. You might have heard that phrase before, gave up the ghost. Why? Because look at this, Jesus is not struggling with his last breath. Jesus doesn't go out with a whimper. Jesus is not the hapless, helpless man there. His last words are not words of wistful thinking. His last words are words of victory. It is accomplished. In other words, I have done it. He dies the death that sinners deserve, we sinners deserve, to give grace that is undeserving that we sinners get to receive. And he does this willingly and with power. He even chooses to give up his spirit, to give up the ghost. That's his power. He gives it up willingly. He doesn't die on the cross as a victim. He dies as the victor. Christ on the cross cries out, I did it for you. It is finished. And so the question before us now is, do you believe it? A lot of us struggle to believe it. I know this because I'm one of your elders, I'm your pastor and I talk with a lot of you and I feel it too. A lot of us struggle to believe it. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's possible for us reforming as Christians to come to Good Friday with such a sense of familiarity that we almost walk away thinking, I learned nothing new. As if that's what the cross of Christ is about. You learning things. As if dying and meeting your maker is an exam of comprehension of knowledge you know. It's not knowledge you know, it's the person you hold on to. Perhaps we look for a new insight into the message. Can I say, preachers of all people are very tempted by this because every year Easter comes and it's the same message. Nothing changed from last year. It's the same Bible. We've got different passages. But the temptation is for preachers and churches is to look for that new insight that no one else has seen or, or to discover it from an old commentary that we can say that everyone else thinks, well, that sounds pretty profound. Well, you're a smart guy. You're a smart church. Or we can dress it up in other ways. You know, just the, the message of the cross is just not doing it this year. We need purple lights. Jesus says, this is how he draws people to himself. It's the cross. May it be that I am never, never bored with rescue from hell. 
Oh my, if I, if I look bored, seem bored, can you pray for me, pray for one another, that the Holy Spirit would come and strike with new eyes to see this, the profound nature of how glorious it is to be rescued from death and judgment and hell and to be given infinite pleasure at His right hand forevermore through the cross of Christ. But also some of us struggle to believe for other reasons. We struggle to believe because we struggle with grace, receiving grace. I've been there, I know this. Friends, we all have shame. We all have sin. What happens is we're often tempted to deal with it in other ways. Some of us try to deal with our shame by focusing on our self-righteousness. If I had more righteousness in my life, then that would kind of drown out the shame. I wouldn't be able to hear it anymore. I can't hear you. My guilt. No, 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 no. You're not there because I'm a good person. I don't know how loud that was for you, by the way. I'm sorry. We say things to ourselves like, I've done the right things. Or worse, we just play Pharisee tax collector and say, well, at least I'm not like that person over there because I know what they've done. Perhaps if it's not self-righteousness, we rely on other things. We try and find things like the time since I last sinned. I've kicked that habit. I've kicked it on the calendar. I've been able to not fall into that sin. And maybe we try and deal with our guilt ourselves in this way. It never works. For whatever we do, whatever we try and believe in, that's not Christ on his cross. We end up living ungrateful, bored, anxious, self-loathing lives. That's not life. That's not life in his name. Friends, here's where we finish. The answer to all our sin, guilt and shame, is hearing these words from Jesus. It is finished. Believe it, friends. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we've loved hearing the voice of Jesus on that cross just now. And we're grateful for what he came to do for us. It's so good. It's good news. So we're praying now that as we sing, that we would believe and have life in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.